Hello, Minnesota boxing fans, and welcome to the second part of our Minnesota Fight Night podcast interview with boxing historian Jake Wagner. I'm Brian Johnson, and my co-host is Sean Strauss. In this episode, Jake shares stories about Minnesota boxers who aren't yet in the Hall of Fame, but perhaps should be. He offers some great insight into the Scott Ledoux-Dwayne Bobbick rivalry and dishes on one of my personal favorites, Walter Farmer Lodge. He starts out by debunking, once and for all, the myth that Willie Pep won a round against Minnesota boxer Jackie Graves without throwing a single punch. I hope you enjoy the interview. Building off what we already talked about. So Bert Sugar was a friend of mine, not a close friend, but we're both members of Ibro, and I called him a handful of times. He called me twice. And I remember when I first discovered this fable I called up Bert and he was like, yeah, you know, I never believed it. Six months later, I see the topic come up. It's mostly after Don Stradley called me from ESPN magazine. He wanted to write a story on it. And he interviewed Don Riley on the one side and me on the other. And then he quotes Bert Sugar and Sugar saying it happened. I, I couldn't believe it. I remember calling up Bert and saying, Bert, he's like, Jake, you know what? It helps the sport. And I'm like, that's, it helps one guy and it helps the sport. And it hurts another guy that happens to be my friend. Later, I was one of his pallbearers, but it hurts that person's, though, mystique, like there's some sort of buffoon in the ring, you know what I mean? And uh, listen, nobody's that good where they could do that and entire round. I mean, it's somebody would have noticed it. It's nothing against Willie or Don or anything like that. I, I wish it were true, so you could almost sit and say it's something that's true in the sport of boxing, but anybody who's serious about it, there's absolutely zero evidence. At the time, I even interviewed 11 people who were alive, for, who were there at the fight. Jim Glancy and Bill Kane and other people that you probably wouldn't know. And Jackie's brother, Harold, and some people from, from uh, Austin, uh, uh, Dave Buxton, and other, all these names that come to mind that were there. I mean, nobody ever even heard of that. They actually recalled the, the early rounds of the fight being extremely fierce. You know, it was, uh, it was interesting. But yeah, it's nothing more than a fable. Yeah, I know. I told you, I looked at both papers, uh, both the local papers here and also the East Coast papers, you know, uh, in particular, Hart Hartford, Connecticut. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the third round, which is a, the supposed round where Pep didn't, you know, throw yeah. a punch and, and won. It actually said it was his best round of the fight, <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. They talk about him punching Graves into the ropes. And exactly. Um, you know, the force didn't do that, you know? So it was, you know, something else did. I mean, this is, people forget, this was not some club fighter that he fought. This was Jackie Graves, who was all over the place. He was the number two rated featherweight in the world at the time, and for not, and not by accident. And this is one of the pound for pound hardest punching punchers in the featherweight division ever. And I mean, he has a great resume. He had a great amateur pedigree be guys like Tony Gennaro and the amateurs and also blew out Charlie Riley in two rounds and nobody else could do that. I mean, Charlie Riley was an equally powerful uh, puncher from St. Louis. I mean, he's, he wasn't like he was fighting some chump and he didn't even do that against anybody else either. So I'm just, and much less the Southpaw here now to tip it off. So it just, like I said, we don't need to belabor it. It just, it, it just didn't happen. That's all. You know, yeah. so before we move on for that, before I guess I just wanted to say thanks for doing everything you did to uh, get Graves a uh, headstone. 
you know, yeah. and uh, for the fans yeah. who don't know about that, yeah, I mean, Graves is buried and didn't have a headstone. And Yep, yep. When I, I, I was flattered when the family asked me to be a pallbearer, and um, I did a slideshow at his wake, and uh, we, we my wife and I spent the night in Austin, and we had that ready for the, the next day, and the funeral, and um, I can't, it was, I just remember there was snow on the ground. I don't remember exactly what day he even died. But it was cold. And so I came back the following spring when I happened to be through that way. And I could not find out. I got a pretty good memory. I find his grave. And I'm thinking, what the heck? I know it's so I went to the office and they said, Yeah, he doesn't have a marker. And I'm like, he doesn't have a marker. So he's just grass. They said, Yeah. And I thought, nobody should be just dirt and have no idea that you're being stood upon, much less Jackie Graves. So to the uh, I think his name was Tom Steam, Steim at the time, was the mayor of Austin. And um uh, donated a little money of my own. And then we also had, uh, we approached, I think it was, uh, it's a local memorial company that made headstones. I can't think of the name off the top of my head. It's on the headstone, but they, they pitched in, I think 50% and then we had to raise the rest. And really, I'd almost like to still do something like that for, there's a lot of fighters that don't have graves. Oscar Gardner is one of them. His brother Eddie's right next to him. So it goes Oscar, Eddie, Joseph. Joseph never really fought. But you got, they're all three are in, three unmarked graves in St. Mary's Cemetery in Minneapolis. Uh, I recently went on www.findagrave.com and I created a virtual cemetery for uh, Minnesota boxers and figures like managers and things like that. So even the guys that don't have a gravestone per se or a marker, um, I go and I take a photograph of the spot where they're actually at. Like Earl Blue would be another, Little Boy Blue. I mean, there's another guy who should be in the Hall of Fame. Um, Blue has no marker. You know, you had... His wife left him, went to prison for an armed robbery of a Piggly Wiggly. He didn't actually do it. He was in the car that got away. At that point, he was pretty incapacitated, you know, from a fight, what the fights have done to him, even at a young age. You can uh, read his, uh, his parole officer's notes and the psychologist's officer's notes of the Minnesota Historical Society from his prison record. I did. It was of complete desperation. The guy wanted to kill himself. He couldn't get a job even when he was released from uh, prison. They said he had the mind of a 14-year-old boy. He walked on his heels. I mean, so he lost his wife. He lost his daughter. I never was able to figure out whatever happened to them. I know that I heard that she did get remarried. I met one relative of his once, um, but he absolutely should be in there. But no, no grave markers. He died in the um, Walker, Minnesota, up there in, in a state sanitarium. Early 70s, I would like to get him a headstone. I'd like to get... Uh, Oscar Gardner, a gravestone. I'd like to get Oscar's nemesis, Tommy Dixon, who died of tuberculosis in Arizona. Would love to get him a headstone. I would, there's just so many headstones. Charlie Kemick, who's in there, has no headstone. He, died, he tried to have the drier climate of Colorado, ended up dying not long after he went up there. And one of the only fighters in history ever retired undefeated. Um, no headstone. So I'm thinking maybe we could follow the same blueprint and get the, you know, some free publicity and, and uh, get like a local monument manufacturer to chip in and then maybe do some sort of, uh, I don't know, crowdsourcing or something like that. Professor Charles Hadley has no headstone in Washington. Um, there's a lot of guys. Danny Needham has no headstone. You know, there's just a lot of guys that have no marker. And it, to me, it's just, that's like the ultimate slap. It's almost like he never existed. And it um, doesn't have to be anything fancy, but I'd like to see some of these guys get a marker. Fortunately, Graves was able to get one. It's a really nice headstone, too. Says Minnesota Boxing Hall of Fame in the back. Says World Boxing Hall of Fame, which is also inductee. Gives his record. Has a nice photograph on the front. It's it's really good. Yeah, it's nice. It was very touching. Well, that was great that you did that, and what a great cause to try to 
gets these other uh, fighters headstones that they give them a so they deserve it and uh, maybe someone listening to this podcast uh, who knows might even step forward and help out with that cause so yeah you never know i mean there's a lot of good fighters that that are are dead they have no headstone that aren't even in the, the minnesota hall of fame well who are some of the boxers that should be in the hall of fame but aren't yet there's a lot it's not like we're done yet there's a lot of guys out there who are not in the, the hall? You know, Billy Miskey Jr. You could make an argument there. Uh, Jimmy Gibbons, who really, you know, was really Russell Anderson. He was actually the next door neighbor of uh, Mike Gibbons. Idolized Mike Gibbons, and he was his chore boy. So he would do yard work for him. And then you go look up his record, though he had a pretty damn nice uh, run in the heavyweight division. He went by the moniker Jimmy Gibbons. Uh, Britt Gorman, who was a well-known referee in the 40s and 50s, he was actually a killer bantamweight. Now, his record had about 20, 30 fights that I updated on box rec. Johnny Stanton, another great referee, also a great fighter. I updated another 15, 20 for him. Babe Daniels, probably 15, 20 for him. He's the first cousin of Dick Daniels. Dick Daniels should be in there, so neither of them are in there. Um, and not because people don't think they're worthy, but because only because you know, we only uh, can have so many each year. Floyd Sweet P. Hagen, who was a killer puncher in the 1940s. His nemesis, mysterious Billy Smith from Minneapolis could, uh, could be in the Hall of Fame. Um, Tommy Comiskey was a relative of the Gibbons. I think of uh, Henry Shaft, was a killer welterweight in the 1940s and 50s. You should check out his record on Box Rec. Uh, some guys people don't know, um, like Wes, I would say like uh, Wen Lambert, Jock Moore, guys like that. But then guys that people do know, um, Don Quinn, one of our, our state heavyweight champion, not in there yet. Don Jasper, state heavyweight champion from Duluth, not in there yet, would be a great one. Howard Mayberry, the Duke of Duluth, one of the great Bantamweights in state history. Check out his record. And there's still, I'm still finding ones that are missing. Um, another guy with a 100-plus fight career, uh, not in there yet. Um, I think of Al Van Ryan, really tough guy, really tough lightweight welterweight from the 19-teens and 20s. Um, Jackie Sharkey, there's another guy. You can't just look at his record. You know, I think he has like 50-some wins and 30-some losses, but Look at the people he fought. I mean, world mm -hmm. things like that, and hardly ever even here. Um, Frank Androff, Billy Showers, Johnny O'Donnell. I mean, there's just there's a lot of guys. And then you can go into the promoters and the, the fight managers. Gene Fessenmeyer as a fight manager. Uh, Ron Peterson. Ron Peterson. You can make a great argument as a fight manager and, and a matchmaker um, throughout the 70s and 80s. No, Ron's a little controversial, and Ron likes it that way. Mm -hmm. So have people's contributions. Tommy Burnett. The only pretty much promoting boxing during the 1980s so there's just a, there's a lot there's no real shortage of names that could be in there under the trainers J johnny diotis was another great trainer <clears throat> one thing that i always thought where maybe we got it wrong though in the hall of fame is and i don't i don't play about i was there that year but jimmy potts is in the hall of fame is owning one of the more famous gyms of all time the potts gymnasium potts should be there's a fighter um you look up his record, his I did extensive research on, probably took me six months in my spare time. But here's a guy who, when I started on his record, I think had 20 some fights. You go look, it's over a hundred. And, and he's, he was a great fighter. He, he fought when he was an old man, they called him the grand old man of the ring. He fought as an old man by those terms. And Jimmy Potts was a killer lightweight. I mean, he was once looked at as a challenger for the title. So, I mean, um, yeah, we just got a, a lot of great, a lot of great names. And then John Hogman Sargent. I mean, definitely. We're talking about a Minnesota Boxing Hall of Fame here, and he was a big uh, heavyweight name for Minnesota. 
you know, 15, 20 years ago. He should, he should, he should definitely, he's certainly eligible. He should definitely be taking a look at. So we got a lot of good guys. Um, the hardest thing to do when I was running the Hall of Fame was take emails and uh, uh, phone calls from people that, that aren't qualified. And it would be because, uh, it could be because of a lot of reasons. It could be because um, they didn't have enough pro fights. Yeah. Maybe they only had five, six, seven pro fights, or maybe they weren't really that good at as of course their their own kin's going to think they were or it could be they had a really incredible amateur career but a short pro career and maybe the hall of fame goes towards that in the future where they take into consideration you know amateur fighters i think it's hard to do because up until very recently you talk about how bad record keeping was that's even worse well everybody knows about Dwayne Bodick and scott ledoux tell us about another great rivalry in minnesota boxing history I talked to Jimmy Haggerly before he died when I was getting really into this in the early 2000s. And he was living in Arizona at the time. He's a rough guy to the end. And uh, he told, when I asked him about Joe Schmolzy, because I was working on a book, one of the ones I never finished, it was called Land of 10,000 Bruises, 100 Years of Minnesota's Greatest Boxing Rivalries. And maybe I should have done it after something different, but I wanted, you know, I wanted Bobbick and Ledoux, Schmolzy and Haggerly, and stuff like that. Now, maybe I should have just done it on our biggest fights and maybe I'll, change it if I ever finish it. But I wanted his take because Schmolzy unfortunately died of a car died in a car accident when he was a young man shortly after he retired. And um when I brought up Joe Schmolzy's name to a 70 plus year old Jimmy Haggerly, he goes, that F and S O B I said, I said, you hate him? He goes, I don't hate him. That's just how you talk. He goes, I still dream about him. I said, you he goes, I still do. And he started laughing. He goes, I still dream, out of all the people I fought, I dream about Joe Schmolzy. Our four fights, my gosh, he goes, uh, I still live those fights in my head. And he said, there's just something about his style. I don't know. Styles make fights, like they say. He said, and we just, we just had styles that were out for each other, I guess, you know. One, one fighter I have to ask you about, and Sean knows this, I, I have a strange infatuation with uh, Walter Farmer Lodge, and I mentioned him, uh, devoted a couple of pages to him in my book, Murder in Chisago County, which is about uh, a guy named Alvin Johnson, who was accused in 1933 of killing his wife and seven kids. He disappeared and oh, was wow. never found again. Um, but, but Alvin Johnson had a brother-in-law and, uh, named Farmer Lodge. Farmer Lodge was married to Alvin Johnson's sister, Esther. And so that's how I actually... Um, found out about him and then I did a little history on Farmer Lodge and I, I, I learned that he was a favorite sparring partner of Jack Dempsey. He fought uh, Jack Johnson in Havana, Cuba, fought Primo Carnera. He yep. fought more fights than he won but it sounded like he, he was uh, he, he was an interesting character and one of those guys who even showed up in Jack Dempsey's um, uh, a biography about uh, where uh, just a real quick story, uh, a, a sports writer of the era, Paul Gallico, was asked by his editor to do a, a to spar a few rounds with the champ, with Dempsey, right? So before the the, the sparring match with Gallico, um, Dempsey had a little setup with with Farmer Lodge, where he knocked out Farmer Lodge cold, and then had Farmer Lodge carted out in a stretcher, moaning and groaning to scare the achievers out of uh, Gallico. Um, so. Anyway, he's just an interesting guy, um, uh, and I've been to his grave, at uh, visited his grave in North Branch at the Catholic Cemetery up there, but I'm wondering uh, what you know about Farmer Lodge and if, if you um, have any stories about him. I don't really have any stories about him, um, 
but I, I definitely know about him. I mean, so he's sort of a clumsy fighter. He started off as a pro wrestler. And, you know, this is back when wrestling was real. So they would actually wrestle. There wasn't the, 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 the drama that it is today. And you'd, you could read about his, his wrestling matches that would go 25 minutes or whatever until you could, you know, get the guy pinned or the guy would give. But you, this is, so he would, he fought Zabisco and guys like that in, in, the, in the ring, in the mats, on the mats, in the wrestling game. And I don't exactly know what got his interest in the boxing, but it was not surprising because oftentimes they do that. They put the cards together. So they do it with wrestling and half with boxing to appeal to two different uh, crowds. And um, technically, you know, I mean, boxing wasn't even, it was close to being legalized. It got legalized in April of 1915, but when they first banned it in 1892, I mean, that was it, you know, you can go to jail and all this stuff. And there's a lot of sneak fights and then, Later, it sort of evolved to the papers would report on it, but nobody prosecuted the sports writers. Like, how did you know to write about this? And then it sort of got to be a little looser. Eventually, they just, they, they weren't policing it. And um, they would list them as sparring matches. So you have to be careful about that because they weren't sparring matches. These guys get paid and they were real fights. That's what you had to write. And the historians know that, but that's, so he would be on these cards where at first he was a wrestling when I saw his name and then he would start boxing. Um, I actually found his first pro fight this morning. I updated it to box rec just for you. So <laughs> Al Palzer is actually, he got DQ'd. <laughs> he got DQ'd uh, against Palzer. And then he got DQ'd, I think, in his second fight for refusing to break, which was kind of a controversial. Um, Captain Frank Whitmore was a decent referee, but people booed him when he, when he DQ'd him in the third round for not letting go. So much so that the main event fighters didn't want Whitmore refereeing their fight. So they had to come out of the <laughs> out of the stands and referee the final fight. So um, clumsy and awkward because he wasn't classically trained to fight. He was a wrestler. Um, is it a shock that he didn't let go right away? He's used to grappling. Um, but I'll say this. He either knocked you out or he got knocked out. Is yep. pretty much, there's a few decisions here and there, but I think almost all of his wins were by way of knockout. Yeah. Majority of his losses were via that route, but he didn't fight easy guys either. You know, like you mentioned his his resume, I mean, pretty, pretty good, pretty good list of names. He frankly didn't care. You know, I mean, Walter Farmer Lodge was that guy. I mean, he was the guy who just climbed the ring. He was often also substituted on one or two days notice for fights. He was, he didn't care. You know, he liked to fight. He liked action. He liked to wrestle. He liked to fight. Um, like I said, he's definitely, nobody accused him of being a scientific boxer by any stretch of the imagination. He was, he was a caveman slugger, but you did not want to be at the tail end of his right hand when it came a, a wallop in. He threw it a lot like Ken Norton. He fought out of a kind of a crouch and he'd whip it and whip right overhand like that. And if it hits you, it usually was not a good night. You, you had to be a pretty good boxer to be able to deal with it. So, um, and a lot of the guys he fought, unfortunately for him were, I mean, Carnera and Jack Johnson and guys like that. So, I mean, um, Burpo, yeah, Fred absolutely. Fulton. You know, I mean, uh, there's another fighter like him at the time that was popular, Duke Horn. Not a good fighter, but it was amazing the kind of fan following Duke Horn had. He would sell out these places for just his slugging style. And even he would admit he's not that great of a fighter, you know. But so, yeah, I mean, but um, I also think Farmer Lodge fought Mike Mandel. And Mike Mandel, another guy, you look at his record that doesn't tell the tale because he, like many guys, fought too long. So, yeah, a string of losses where he shouldn't, wouldn't have had him if he'd have quit at the right time. And uh, fought pretty good competition. Uh, yeah. Time when Mike Mandel was something truly special too. So, you know, people he have to. A, 
Take those I was going to say he had he had a few fights against a guy named Andre Anderson too. He had a yep. win for Andre Anderson. Tough guy. He was an interesting fighter out of Chicago. I understand he was killed by the mob for refusing to take a dive in um, one of his fights. But uh, yeah, a story. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if that's if that's true, but that's what I've read. So. Um, interesting guy but he was considered a pretty decent prospect at one time i guess andre anderson i believe held jack dempsey to a draw at one point so but now we got the like i said i mean there's another anderson uh arnie anderson was another fighter uh his manager also could probably be in the hall of fame carl ogren who was a decent fighter but later on as a fight manager he was manager of arnie anderson and then <clears throat> uh from duluth and uh and floyd hagan you know, so like I said, Floyd Hagen was a really good fighter, couple, but he just couldn't be Billy Smith. So it's, uh, I got a chance to meet Billy Smith uh, not long before he died, just coincidentally. He was like 90 years old, I think, when I met him. And um, it's really hard to find him because his name's Billy Smith. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's like a million of those in the white pages. And I still don't remember how the hell I got lucky and found him. I think I found a friend of his, Warren Corbett's son, and he put me in touch with him. And... Um, he did sign his autograph for me on a sheet of paper, which is sort of cool. But it was uh, he had a scrapbook, unbelievable. He had his he had his robe. He had all these things. Um, when I met Dick Daniels, uh, by second marriage, son, that he adopted, he broke my heart because he told me, "I just threw away Jake. Had I met you, I would have saved it. I just threw away Dick's boxing robe in the 1930s." I don't, I would gladly take it as well. It's starting to fall apart. And I'm like, I still would have taken it. I'd have taken it in a heartbeat just because I don't want it to end up in the trash. Um, when we inducted Lisa Vold, it was really cool because his son, who looks just like him, brought that onto the stage, his dad's robe. And I held up half of it. It was heavy. It was not a light robe like I was expecting. It was a heavy robe. But it was pretty cool. Like um, Deontay Wilder's get up? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's um, well, the memories that I have from the time that I spent, you know, working with the Hall of Fame, I, to me, it was the highlights were always about the families and the players themselves. The look on Rafael Rodriguez's face, you know, in the first year when he got inducted and how happy he was mm. by that sort of a thing. And um, gosh, I can remember meeting Rafael in all sorts of neighborhoods, selling tickets. And he'd say, I got five more family members. You got the money? Yeah, I got it. Jake, I'll meet you at the corner of this and this. I don't really want to meet you there, Raphael. Can we meet any other place? Well, I don't have a car. Okay, I'll meet you there, but let's make it quick. It must have looked like a drug deal, so help me. You know, me pulling over in a Tahoe, <laughs> exchanging tickets and cash. But I didn't think about memories like that. I think about Scott Ledoux and Dwayne Bobbick. When I, when I was interviewing them for that book that I never finished on their rivalries, I mean, it was so much fun because they really didn't like each other to the very end. Um, it was that big of it. I mean, I was, you know, crapping in my diapers when these fights were happening, 76 and 77, but I became an expert on them because I read all every day's newspapers from like three months prior to like three months after. And Scott would be like, I forgot I even sparred with Louis Hankinson, you know? Yeah, you're right. You know, and we'd be out the Sandpiper, you know, in where Joe Daskowitz managed me and we'd put out an outdoor ring. That's right. You know? And so, you know, Scott never would give Dwayne credit I asked him the same question I asked him before. And I said, Scott, are you ever going to say anything nice about Dwayne? And he said, you know what? I'll say this. I don't know why. I got nothing to be ashamed. Suddenly he had nothing to be ashamed of by losing. You know, he's like, I got nothing to be ashamed of. I mean, 
shit, he beat, he beat the hell out of Tefalio Stevenson that nobody remembers at the Pan Am Games, and he lost the following year at the Olympics. But he was a great fighter, you know, and then, uh, you know, uh, hey, what can you say? He had a great record and everything else, and he just had my number, he said. You know, honestly, Jake, he just had my number. He goes, I just it, – it's been a sore topic for me for years. I have the exact quote written in my book on my Microsoft Word thing, but – he said something like, it's been hard for me to talk about him for years because I predicted he'd lose big in both fights. And then we both ran our mouths and it sucks to be the guy coming out on the bottom both times. And he's just like, but, um, you know, such is life and then is what it is. But my hat's off to him. He beat the hell out of me in both fights. <laughs> so it's, inter it's interesting how that goes because uh, matchups are everything. We know what Ken Norton did to Dwayne Bobbick. I remember watching that fight on TV, first round mm -hmm. knockout. Ledoux fought uh, Norton very, very well. Well, that, he almost knocked him out. So um, just those yeah. matchups are so important. You're right. You know, styles are definitely different. Scott had a way better chin than Dwayne did. I mean, in my opinion, if Dwayne – Sean and I talked about this a little bit. Dwayne described himself as a slow starter, you know, and so the guys that would get him quick like John Tate and like what was that, 79 or something like that, John Tate, you know, Ken Norton. Yeah. But he was also, I can't, I can't believe for the life of me, having been trained by, you know, Eddie Futch and guys like that. I don't know how they didn't seal up his mistake of being so susceptible to a right hand. Mm -hmm. It was always his, his that, that was the deadly bullet for Dwayne was getting hit with a right hand from Tafalio Stevenson to, you know, to, gosh, what was the South African guy's name that got him? Canuti, Kelly Canuti, or from him to John Tate to yeah. I mean it's just it was always that to Ken Norton, but the slow starter thing always puzzles me too. Here's Dwayne Bobbick with no argument at all, one of the most successful amateur boxers of all time. Mm -hmm. And that is not a business where you can be a slow starter. I mean it's only a couple round fight, yeah. so he's used to being a fast starter, and then he goes to the pros. I, I never really. Um, Never really had a chance. I guess I had a chance. Never thought to ask him why that transition was so different. But um, yeah, you know, different. And Norton was a couple, a little bit more shop worn by the time he was at the very end of his career when he met Ledoux. To be fair, right, right. And um, there was a lot of people that, if you read the the magazines and the articles at the time, I mean, Dwayne was predicted to win, not by everybody, but by a fair amount. Oh yeah, to win that fight. You know, I I do remember talking to Dwayne like, what the hell went wrong, and he told me. Um, you know, it was the only time in my career, it's the biggest fight of my life, and I was left all alone in the dressing room. Nobody's warming me up. I'm not hitting ads. Fletch was nowhere to be found. I don't know. To this day, I don't know where he went. He goes, I was, bet there'd be celebrities coming back in. The star of the fall guy was coming in, and Lee Majors, and all these other people coming in wishing me luck. There was nobody. Everybody was gone. Murphy Griffith, you know, uh, Emil's uncle, who was also his trainer. But he just caught up doing stuff. I, they came in with 10 minutes to go. I'm like, Wayne, we got to get you out of here. I was ice cold. I didn't, my mind was in the right spot. I was nervous. I'm a I'm town of like 100 people. You know, I'm in Madison Square Garden. I'm just kind of some jitters, he said, but I also wasn't loose. And I needed a, I needed that sparring, you know, not sparring, but he said uh, to get the, the shadow boxing and the warm-up stuff. And it was impossible because people were constantly coming to my room. He said, I, I don't know if that's an excuse or an explanation, he said, but it, it definitely played a factor. He said, and then he said, in all honesty, you watch the fight. That's one of my fights that is televised. He said, I got hit in the throat. Yeah. And I did see that. And you can hear it, actually. I think the fight's on YouTube. 
when the referee talks to Dwayne, he goes, I'm all right. I'm okay. <laughs> he sounds like he's, you know, been a smoker with a little thing on his throat, you know, and he, he definitely, uh, and then you read the, the newspaper reports for the three days after he was hospitalized for a trachea injury. Mm. So he, you know, it is what it is. Uh, Ken Norton himself said in the post-fight interview, he was shocked that he, he caught him, but he said, I noticed a big white opening for a right hand. He said, and I, I just threw it. So who knows? Maybe the same thing would have happened if they fought twice. I don't know. Yeah, it's too bad that in some ways those are the fights that people remember and they don't remember how good a fighter he was overall and right. what a great amateur career he had. Like you said, I think he knocked out Mike Weaver in the amateurs. And well, even his pro record, if you look at it, it's it's irritating to me because, you know, on the boxing fans can be really brutal. And, you know, when they hear the name Bobbick, I, I don't know if so many people just got um, excited for that fight against Norton. And then when, you know, Bobbitt gets blown out, if that just let a bunch of people down or what. But look at his record. I mean, he fought so many times. Like, he fought more times in a year than some fighters fight in, like, four years. And he's knocking guys out. So, um, when you have, you know, like, he beats Larry Holmes in the amateurs, too, you know, with yep. Muhammad Ali and Howard Cosell doing play-by-play. Right. You know, and Muhammad Ali's talking about how he's going to have to fight the winner, probably, you know, and saying yeah. positive things about Bobby. People forget about stuff like that. Yeah, and, I mean, he was arguably one of the better body punchers of the entire 1970s. And that was Dwayne's big thing was body punching. I mean, we have film. I don't I have it someplace. We played it on the Hall of Fame highlight reel of him knocking a guy down was such a brutal body shot. It's probably one of the best body shots I've ever seen in my life. And the guy actually stops in the middle of the ring and he keels over. Like Dwayne had to stand back. He didn't know what to do. Like he literally was standing straight, but he was bent like at a 90 degree angle straight over. And Ben and Bobak looks at the referee and he's not sure if he should. So then Bobak starts jabbing his head because <laughs> he doesn't know what to do, which is down by his waistline. Guy stands up and he falls back in the ropes and Dwayne hit another pile driver right to the basket and the guy just crumbled. It's you know the guy who used to knock people out with his jab happened three times in the pros knockout. So it's just uh you know it's he's he's uh, an underrated fighter who got a bad rap because of the major you know the major thing with Norton and stuff like that. But he was uh, he was better than that. You know? Yeah, uh, he was a better fighter than that. Oh, Jake knows I could talk to him for hours upon hours. And, you know, we're just, you know, getting my brain moving basically about all the stuff, you know, we could talk about. Um, but I just wanted to say thanks again, Jake, you know, um, for, for number one, everything you've done, but then for also sitting down with us today and getting to talk a little bit about some of the names, especially that, and you not, not just some, you throw out a lot of names that uh, I know I'll be listening back and we're going, what did Jake say? And I'll be looking up and it's going to help me with the stuff that I'm doing, you know, looking up the Minnesota boxing history and sharing the news clippings. And, you know, you know, that's a huge passion of mine. Yeah. Um, I love it. So no, no just thanks. I have another guy who's interested in the history uh, for a long time. It's just been me and Jesse Kelly and Jesse's one of my closest friends, very smart boxing guy. And, and we just, uh, Jesse started off with the modern. And then as we became friends, he helped out so much with the hall of fame. He's just been a great friend to have. And ally in the boxing world and he's gotten really interested in the old school stuff too so it's always you can never have enough people and one name i don't know if i mentioned but he absolutely should be in the hall of fame without a doubt was our state light heavyweight champ kelly ward um kelly butcher boy ward butcher boy yeah 
be in there. And I'm sure he will in the next couple of years. But people should go check him out on BoxRec as well. So he had a, a great career. He could have went he could have went longer, but his wife, uh, when he got married, told him to quit. So I don't like a lot of different fighters. But thanks for having me on. Um, yeah. Unboxing, especially the old school stuff. Yeah, hopefully well, we can do it again. Thank yeah. you, Jake. Yeah, let's do this again sometime. It's really been uh, enjoyable. Been, been just a blast talking to you, Bob. Uh, hey, likewise. Boxers. So thank you so much. Yeah, always fun. Thanks for having me.